Over the summer, we're going to shift gears. For those of you who come here regularly, you realize that we normally take a book of the Bible and we preach our way through it, uh, studying the point of the text in its original context and then how it applies to us. But over the summer, we're going to take a change of pace. What we're going to do is reflect on and look at, one by one, the core values that drive the ministry of this church and this congregation. If you take, first of all, the bulletin, take out the bulletin, and the front cover of the bulletin, you see the cross with a few logos down the side of it. This actually encapsulates our core vision, our core values, our core values. You have the cross as the basis for all the other ministries and other values that follow from it. So the cross represents being God-centered. And then if you follow down the list, biblical, missional, communal, and transformational. So over this summer, we're going to take those out one by one and look at them each week. What is it really that, that God is calling us to be as individuals and as a community? What does it mean to be part of this congregation? But what does it mean to be part of God's people in particular? Uh, these are the, the fundamentals that drive everything we do together. Now, there's one other aspect to it that we'll look at each week. Every one of these values is to some degree countercultural. You know, we're not entirely countercultural. We are, most of us, Americans or North Americans or, you know, PR, whatever. You know, we're still part of this culture. And yet, in every dimension, the gospel comes and, and affirms our culture. But in every dimension, it also challenges our culture. And so as we look at these values, as we look at what it means to be God-centered, as we look at what it means to be biblical or missional, as we look at what community means, as we look at what Christian life is like, then in each of these areas, God is both affirming some aspects of our culture and challenging other aspects. So this morning, we start with the most fundamental of all. What does it mean to be God-centered? And as we consider that, really, what it contrasts with in our culture, what our culture encourages us instead is not to be God-centered. What our culture encourages us instead is to be narcissistic, uh, to be self-centered, to be man-centered. Now, this is nothing new. Uh, In the 1800s, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French nobleman And he wanted to come over about a hundred years after the American Revolution and see what was new about American culture, what was different about American culture. And he found a striking difference in our form of cultural narcissism, even 150 years ago. And he put it like this. He said, in Europe, we're narcissistic. We're preoccupied with ourselves. And we use God for our own ends. You know, the, the notion is, the traditional notion is that God, he's the center of the world, and so humankind is supposed to serve him. But he says, in Europe, we've got the notion that we're actually the center and God serves us. He says, I, I, he found the same thing here in America. But he found one difference. In Europe, they were content to have God serve them in the long term. They were content to have God give them eternal life, to get them into heaven. They were, in, they were content 
to have God meet their eternal needs. But he says, here in America, they're not satisfied with God serving them for eternity. These Americans want God to serve them right here and right now. Now, because we're not tempted by one aspect of this, you know, like the health and wealth. We hear this phrase, health and wealth gospel, and we know that there are some churches, there are some pastors, there are some preachers who, who preach health and wealth gospel, you know, serve God and he'll make you wealthy. And serve God and he'll keep you healthy. And we don't go in for that. But think about this. Was the Tocqueville right about us? Think about, when you pray, what, what do we pray for? What, what, how, what's the priority of our prayers? Thy kingdom come, or our will be done? When we pray for children, whose children is it we pray for? And when we pray for jobs, whose jobs is it we pray for? When we pray for peace, whose army do we pray for? When we pray for exams, or we pray to get married, or we pray to have kids, whose kids and whose exams are we praying for? What's the focus of our walk with God? Are we bringing him into our lives? Are we bringing ourselves into his life? Now, 150 years later, Christian Smith is a sociologist who wrote a study that has been quite popular. He wrote a study about American youth. Now, the irony here is when he wrote this study and published his conclusions, people lit up. You know, youth workers lit up. Those who work with youth lit up. You know, youth lit up. Uh, you know, social commentators, oh, what's happening to our youth? The irony of all of that is, he didn't need to write about youth. The same thing could have been said about adults, about their parents. But here's what he said. Most people instinctively suppose that religion exists to help individuals be and do what they want. This is why religion exists. And he's also studying, focused predominantly on Christians. This is why faith exists for Christians. To help us be and do what we want individualistically. It doesn't serve as an external authority. God is not a divinity that makes compelling claims and demands on our lives. He doesn't require that we grow or change in ways that we don't immediately want to. Faith, he encapsulates it in this expression. Faith makes one feel good. Faith resolves one's problems. Faith is not an entire way of life. It's not a disciplined practice that makes hard demands or changes people. God is a cosmic therapist. He's a counselor. He's a ready and competent assistant who responds in times of trouble. And he doesn't, and conveniently, he doesn't particularly ask for devotion or obedience. Smith, in his sociological research, concluded that a few seem to believe that religion is about orienting people to the authoritative will and purposes of God. 
Few seem to think that religion is about serious, life-changing participation in a community. Instead, it's about God responding to our authoritative desires and meeting our needs, not us meeting His. In simple terms, religion is essentially a tool for people to use to get what they want. Not what they need as determined by their religion, but what they want as determined by their individual feelings and desires. Think about it this way, concretely. When you're happy with God, you know, when things are going well with God, what are your life circumstances? You know, how we feel about God is often intersects with how we feel about life. What life circumstances are you when you feel happiest with God? And when you feel most frustrated with God, what life circumstances are you in? You know, does our satisfaction with God persist when life is hard or just when life is easy? Now, Communion has a striking wrinkle on this. Because as I was thinking about God-centered and we celebrate communion, you see, communion, you could argue from one perspective, that communion is actually counterproductive. If God's goal is to show us that we should obey him, if God's goal is that we honor him, communion is actually arguably counterproductive to that goal. Because what happens in communion? If God's goal is to get us to be God-centered, what do we see in communion? Is that God is us-centered. Hey, communion doesn't teach us to be God-centered. It teaches us that God is us-centered. Communion, in a sense, you could say, endorses narcissism. God's preoccupied with us. See how it fleshes out in Romans 5, 6 to 10. Now, Jen already read this as part of the worship set, but I'll read it to you again. See how this shows God's focus is not God. God's focus is us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? If we were God's enemies and we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see how we expect, or God has a right, we understand intuitively God has a right to be God-centered. Think back to the Old Testament. You know, in Canaanite religion, if you wanted something serious from the gods, what would you do? You see, the most serious thing you could do to demonstrate your commitment to the God was you could kill one of your children. 
especially the sons, because they were more valued than the daughters. But at communion, what we commemorate is not that God called us to show respect for him by killing our sons, but that God was so devoted to us that he killed his son. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, The God who could demand that we die for him, this God sent his son to die for us. So arguably, if what God wanted to show us was that we must serve and honor and worship him. He had a very curious way of going about it. What he could have done is said, come and make an offering to me, a lamb, a lot of money, your children. Come and show me that you're serious about me, that you're properly serious about me. I'm the center of the universe. Come and worship me. And then we'll have a covenant. Then we'll have a relationship. But instead what he did, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. This is a very curious way to show us who's more important. Looking at it from the outside, who's more important to God, Jesus or us? Uh, Looking at it uh, objectively, in a sense, from the outside, who's more important, God or us? This is an extraordinary thing that Christ has done, that God has done. Instead of asking us to acknowledge that he's the center of the universe, he's made us the center of his world. There's an inherent contradiction when he calls us to make him the center of our lives because he has made us the center of his life. Communion demonstrates that God is us-centered, The risk is that we'll see that and be satisfied with it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking, you know, I was describing in the course of the sermon, in the biblical text, I was describing how there are some people who would say basically that because Jesus died for us and took away our sins, as long as we throw ourselves on his mercy, as long as we believe in him, then that's the end of life. You know, that's the end of all that we have to do. We just believe in Jesus and we're going to heaven. And if we do more than that, well, that's good. But but absolutely, it's not necessary. You see, what people have done is looked at communion and said, communion shows us that we are the center of God's life. That we're the priority, not Jesus. That God values us more than we value him, and that's okay. 
People have taken that message. They wouldn't say that explicitly, but that's basically how they live and, and the theology they develop from it. Is it's enough that Christ died for us. We don't have to live for him. So communion can be actually counterproductive. But notice what else the Bible says about communion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. One died for all, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. One died for all, and he died for all. Why? So that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Or as Jesus said it when he was teaching, he said to his disciples, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. I'm a little reluctant to use this language, but in a sense you could say that communion, communion is the quintessential bait and switch. Somehow, God invites us to come to communion, where when we were his, still his enemies, he sent his son to die for us. God invites us to, com to communion where we are the center of the universe. The whole universe was rearranged so that we could have salvation. And somehow now, coming to communion, the whole universe being rearranged to put us at the center, now coming to communion is to transform us so that we rearrange our universe and put God at the center. We come here saying, we're at the center. And God calls us to leave here saying, he's at the center. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is not a natural condition for any of us. C.S. Lewis observed, and many of us have observed in our own private experience, particularly if you're a first-generation convert, you know, often, really, it's an emotional need. You know, Tim Keller has a new book on, about coming to faith, and basically his argument is this, in the new book on, on emotional reasons to believe. Basically, the book captures emotional reasons to believe. His first book was about logical, intellectual, cognitive reasons to believe. And his, this other book says, basically, people don't come to faith for logical, cognitive reasons. People come to faith for emotional reasons. I've got a book in my library, Philosophers Who Believe, and I thought, this is great. All these philosophers are going to talk about their intellectual reasons and, and convictions, why they came to faith. But they don't. Uh, most of all of them in the book don't talk about the logic that drove them to Christ. They talk about the emotional need or the life need that drove them to Christ. Uh, most of us come to Christ for these needs. But C.S. Lewis observed, and I've observed from my own experience, and maybe you've observed it from your own experience. When we first come to faith, the joy, the surprise, the warmth is overwhelming. It's spectacular. 
I mean, no one anticipated, no one told me to anticipate this. They, they shared the gospel with me. I came to faith. I had been emotionally bottled up. It was a huge emotional interaction for me. I, I just couldn't believe life could be like this. But then as C.S. Lewis observed, and I experienced it before I read it, and I wondered what was going on in my life, God seems to gradually withdraw that. He, he pulls it away. We start out by loving God for what he does for us. And then maybe we hit a crisis. Maybe the very kind of thing that drove us to him and that he met that need which really compelled us to come to faith, then he starts to withdraw that thing from us. And really the process seems designed, Lewis observed, and I think he's right, God is condescending, God is kind. He'll let us first love him for the things he gives us. But then sometimes he withdraws those things so that we learn gradually, slowly, painfully to love him not for the things he gives us, but because of who he is. Not because of what he does, but because of his inherent, intrinsic nature and beauty. It's not a lot different from when we raise children. I once read a study about uh, Asian children, Chinese children in California. Psychological profile over the course of years about kids growing up in California. And the study concluded that these kids' lives are great until they go to school. And then, not only is school hard, but parents start putting all the pressure on them and so forth. You know how it is when you have kids. When they're young, when they're little, they're cute and whatever, they're helpless. You pour all your devotion into them. But at some point, you've got to wean them off of being constantly being takers. And you've got to train them, develop them, so that they can become givers to society not just to the family, but give us to life and to the world. And maybe that's what God does with us. Tanya Lerman is a leading social anthropologist who wrote a book entitled When God Talks Back. What she did as a sociologist, this was her third study of unusual religions. She considered evangelicals, people like us, an unusual religion. It was her third study. First she studied witches in the UK, and then she studied the Parsi in the Middle East, and then she studied evangelicals in America. So for her social anthropological study, she engages in participant observation. She joins a church. So she joined two churches over the course of four years. She joined churches and Bible studies and fellowship groups. And, bi- and So here's what she found. When she attended Bible studies and fellowship groups and prayer meetings, what struck her was two features of American Christian faith. One is the degree of intimacy. You know, not a formal religion, not a hierarchical religion, not a stand-in-awe-of-God religion, but real intimacy. That we can talk to God, and he'll talk to us, and that we can connect with God emotionally, and God's welcoming, he doesn't stand on formality. You know, God's really open, and people enjoy the intimacy. And what she also noticed was, 
a corresponding uh, triviality. The classic example she gave was that people don't just ask for, for cars from this God. They ask even for a red convertible. And she wonders, oh, who's the center of this universe? God or, or man? Our natural condition is that we're the center of the universe. Uh, Susan Isaacs writes, uh, uh, Susan Isaacs was an actress wannabe. Her, the highlight of her career was she got a few minutes in one episode of Seinfeld. For those of you who don't remember who Seinfeld was, Google it. Uh, she got a few minutes in one episode, but she was very frustrated. She loved God. She was a Christian. She was trying to serve God, and she just couldn't break into the acting profession. She saw some of her friends surpass her. Uh, she took the initiative to do up a demo video and invited one of her actor friends to join her. He got a job out of it and a career. She didn't. And she's talking about how this affects her relationship with God. And the book is entitled, Angry Conversations with God. And she talks about being snarky with God. And the whole point of it is this. She was frustrated. Because her career wasn't going great. And over time, she began to think, I'm fussing at God. Because my career. While I'm living in America... And these women in Sudan are being captured as slaves for the armies to the north. You know, our natural condition is that we're self-preoccupied. What can we do about it? Let me suggest some concrete things we can do about it. Let's not beat up ourselves on this. God is rightly the center of the universe, and we want to gradually wean ourselves off of ourselves in preoccupation onto him. Let's think about how it could affect our prayers. Pray for our kids. You know, if my son's unemployed, I pray for my son. If my son's struggling, any of my sons are struggling, I pray for them. That's right and legitimate. We should bring our kids before God. Don't stop doing that, but add something else to it. You know, next week, the week after, there's going to be a booth in the back about child sponsorship. Sponsor a kid. And every time you pray, or if you've got two kids, sponsor two kids. And every time you pray for one of your kids, pray for one of somebody else's kids. It doesn't have to be child sponsorship. It can be some other kid you know in the, you know, one of your friend's kids in the church. Every time you pray for your kid, pray for some other kid. Or, or pray for the, you know, uh, Patek goes overseas and works in orphanages in Uganda. Find out from her the name of a kid or an orphanage. And as you pray for your kid, pray for that orphanage with these AIDS orphans. You know, don't take away praying for our families. Add something else to it. Something that's in the center of God's heart. So that our, our hearts are not preoccupied solely with our, ourselves, but with, with God's. A career. A career is a way to get money to provide for our families. But as we pray for our jobs, let's pray, how else can we use these jobs? Whose lives can we influence? How can we shape this career to help other people than just our own families? When we think about how we want to live, do we live for ourselves? Or do we live for others and for God? A classic example. You know the most common argument 
for any kind of irregular marriage. The most common argument for divorce, the most common argument for remarriage, the most common argument for gay marriage is what? Personal fulfillment. How about this? Maybe personal fulfillment is not the defense we can use. How about we ask, what can we do in life that will help fulfill other people more than ourselves? Is church predominantly, first and foremost, primarily a place to serve or a place to be served? When we choose a ministry, is it primarily a ministry that blesses us or that meets the needs of other people? How can we live in a way that makes Christ the priority? We know in principle that God is the center of the universe. But how can we live? What small steps can we take this week? Maybe it's in your studies, helping somebody else, rather than looking for other people to help you. Maybe it's when you choose a career, putting income, potential income, at a lower level than the potential help you can give to other people. Maybe when it's buying a car or a home, if we do a little bit, if our standard is a little bit lower, what else could we do with those funds to help other people? Maybe it's in our prayer lives, not just our friends, not just our family, not just our jobs, but also, but also, when we have a ministry, what can we do? to help other people. Think about one area you can take this week. One area you can take moving forward this quarter, this summer, and think, if God were truly the center of my universe, how would it affect this little area here? Just make a small step forward. God doesn't call us to change the world overnight. God calls us to follow him in daily obedience, bit by bit, bit by bit. Let's pray together. Father, we do worship you as the center of the universe. And yet we notice we always have these little gods that, that rear themselves in our lives, that we, that we tend to put ourselves on this throne in the center of our lives. Father, we worship you. May our lives worship you and not just our words. Work in our hearts that we might truly make you the center of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.